If, you, if you're physically able, will you stand with me as we read God's precious word? But you're a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, who once were not a people but are now the people of God, who had not obtained mercy but now have obtained mercy. Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from flesh, fleshly lusts which war against the soul, having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may, by your good works, which they observe, glorify God in the day of visitation. Therefore submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether to the king as supreme or to governors, as to those who are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men, as free, yet not using your liberty as a cloak for vice, but as bondservants of God. Honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, and honor the king. Servants, be submissive to your masters with all fear, not only to the good and the gentle, but also to the harsh. For this is commendable, if because of conscience toward God one endures grief, suffering wrongfully. For what credit is it when you are beaten for your faults, you take it patiently? But when you do good and suffer, if you take it patiently, this is commendable before God. For to this you were called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us as an example that you should follow in his steps, who committed no sin, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> nor was deceit found in his mouth, who when he was reviled did not revile in return, when he suffered he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously, who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, having died to sin, might live for righteousness, by whose stripes you were healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. That's the word of the living God. You may be seated. Thank you for standing. We've been going through First uh, Peter, and we had to back up <clears throat> and... Uh, Kind of always back up from where we're going to catch everything in context here. And we've been going back to verse 9. And we've been using the outline. Does anybody remember? Uh, in chapter 2, verse 9, uh, the first part of verse 9, all the outline uh, that we've assigned to this starts with a P. What's the first one? Anybody remember? Position. It's our position. We're a chosen generation. We're a royal priesthood. We're a holy nation. We're his own special people. Then the next part of the outline, 2, 9, uh, and 10, the second part of 9 and verse 10, <clears throat> is what? Praise. Praise. Our praises flow from our position. That is, the one who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light, who once were not a people but are now the people of God, who had not obtained mercy but now have obtained mercy. So praise is wonderful name. The next P <clears throat> in the outline is what? Posture. And the posture is that of? Surrender, surrender. Now that comes, <clears throat> excuse me, in verses 11 and 12, where Paul, uh, Peter says, Beloved, I beg you, I, I encourage you, I urge you as sojourners and pilgrims to abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul, having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak of you, speak against you as evildoers, implication they will speak against you as evildoers. They may by your good works, which they observe, glorify God in the day of visitation. Faith justifies us before God. Faith and works justifies before men. 
God sees faith. Men can only see works. That's why the Bible says faith without works is dead. It means that. And I think John Calvin said it best. We are not saved by faith and works, but we are saved by a faith which does work. So it says that they may observe your good works, because that's all men's left with is what we, how we act, our conduct. <clears throat> this couldn't be more important. Not to get saved, but because you are. Observe and glorify God at the day He visits them with the offer of salvation. Then we talked about the, list, the rest of the book, that the glue, the framework that holds it together is submission to authority. In verse 13, it's government authority. In verse 18, it's to employers. In verse 3, chapter 3, verse 1, it's wives to husbands. In chapter 5, verse 5, it's younger people to their elders. He's saying this. Your position that brings forth the praise that should flow from it is a call to a posture of surrender, and that surrender will manifest itself in submission to authority. That's where the work will be seen. Your faith will become real to those. It's dead to those who observe our conduct when our conduct is inconsistent with our faith claims. We confuse people. That's why middle-of-the-road people are so repulsive to Jesus. Because you don't know what jersey they're wearing. You don't know what color they're in. They're, they're, we, they confuse everybody. Well, you say that, but you're doing this. And so therefore, he's calling us to a level of surrender so that we say that. We also act in a matter that's consistent with what we profess. And the next one, position, praise, posture, that of surrender. The next one is, does anybody remember? Pattern. Pattern. Who was it that laid down the pattern? Jesus. You remember the word that we talked about, example, means underwriting. It means that you take a piece of paper and put it over or put a piece of paper with a portrait of Christ and Him on the cross. And He's tracing that and embedding that into our lives to put that imprint on the life of a Christian. We are His. And He wants to manifest that kind of surrender, even to the point of death on the cross to us. And He did it so that not only we could be redeemed by it, He did it so that we could also be empowered by it. So, we have position. We have the praise that comes from it. We have the posture, which is surrender. We have the pattern, which is our Lord on His cross. And then we talked about we have, remember the last one we added to last week, the power. The power. I love, Brother Greg, I love this thought. And sometimes you can hear thoughts batted around in Christian circles, and they sound good, but they're not biblical. This one happens to be both. Where God guides, He provides. Where God guides, He is the provision. He doesn't make provision. He is the provision. We have the power. So let's look at it. He said, Your example, who committed no sin, verse 22, nor was deceit found in his mouth, who when he was reviled, he didn't revile in return. You know what that means? That means that when you and I are reviled, through the power of Jesus Christ, we have the power not to revile in return. What is this notion that's, what, what is this notion? And somebody, somebody in this fellowship emailed me this the other day. Pretty much the same statement I'm about to say. What is this notion that's circled around in Christendom that God's concerned with our happiness and not our holiness? What is that? But what is that? But playing into the spirit of the age. What is that? But asking Jesus to conform into what we'd like to be, rather than coming and conforming into what He is. 
He's not interested in my happiness or yours. He's interested in our holiness. Now the truth of the matter is, holiness produces not happiness. Shame on that. Holiness produces joy. See, happiness depends on happenings. But joy is an outward expression of an inward delight. And that inward delight is Jesus Christ. And it has nothing to do with your circumstances. Hallelujah! I would rather have that. It is God's will that His people be holy. You know why? Because that's the attribute of God that makes Him everything else that He is. God's eternal because He's holy. God is righteous because He's holy. God is loving because He's holy. God is just because He's holy. God is merciful because He's holy. If you could, cap if you could capture the character and nature of God and put a circumference around it, which you can't, but if you could, the circumference would be holy and all the other attributes would fit right in it. That's why He doesn't concede His holiness because it's who He is. And the Bible says we worship the Lord in the beauty of His holiness. Holiness has got a bad rap. Holiness nowadays is usually the thought of somebody who has their hair in a certain fashion, wears dark clothes, and goes around acting sour all the time and defines their life by what they don't do. What a sham on the testimony of holiness. Holiness is about the freedom to do what I get to do. I get to obey God now. I get to put aside my rights. I get to die so that I might live. That's what it says. What is, what is this face picture? It, you know what? If we put it in modern day vernacular, this is how we'd be doing it. Oh, the wonderful lethal ejection. Oh, the wonderful electric chair. Oh, the wonderful firing squad. Oh, the wonderful guillotine. All the wonderful, every kind of thing you can weigh that you could imagine, that you could kill somebody. That's what we'd be celebrating, right? Oh, the wonderful cross. We've dressed it up and we've so distant and so far removed from it, we forget the brutality of it. It was an exercise of execution and they extracted as much pain and suffered as they could out of it. The Persians started it and the Romans perfected it. And they were real good at it by the time Jesus got there. Oh, the wonder, how do we find splendor there? That's why the world doesn't understand Christian faith. And you can't understand Christian faith until you get saved. We celebrate what it finds repulsive. We're sitting here singing about the cross. It bids me come and die that I may find life. He's our pattern for that. Jesus is. But you know what He is also? He's our power. We talked about it before. When he was reviled, he didn't revile in return. That means you don't have to revile in return. That means in the workplace, if you're working for a crooked boss, remember scoliosis, the crookedness of the spine, that means wicked, the ones that are harsh. You don't revile in return, and you faithfully submit to that. You're displaying Jesus Christ himself. Not you acting like Jesus, but Jesus himself. When we threaten, when we suffer, we don't threaten. We don't try to squirm out of it. We don't resent those who bring it on us. Knowing that it had to pass through a sovereign hand first. Who bore himself our sins in his body on the tree. Jesus did not become a sinner on the cross. He became sin. And when he became sin, he killed it. And everything that it could do to curse you and I died with it. Pardon me, but hallelujah. Amen. We were delivered from its penalty. 
We are being delivered from His power, and one day we'll be delivered from His presence. It's over. He became sin. He died so that we might what? Does it stop there? Does it stop there? No. So that we might live, Al, so we might live righteously. Implication? You can live righteously. Implication? Why would God put something out there just to frustrate us? It does frustrate us in trying to figure out whose power we're going to draw from. But once we come to a place in a season of our life where we realize it's thee and not me, then we get to walk in power that's not my own. I get to do. That's what holy is. Holy is not going around acting like a sourpuss mad at the world and thinking the boy, the more sour and the more ugly I act and the more miserable I act and the more I make it hard to be a Christian, the more holy I become. If that's Christianity, count me out. Because it's not. It's a grace imposed by our Savior. Having died to sin, might live for righteousness. The implication, you can live righteously. By whose stripes you are healed. It's a finished work. It's a finished work. It's a finished work. Through one man, sin entered the world, and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men, because all men have sinned. And embedded and interjected into sin itself is the curses that go with it, and Jesus Christ destroyed every bit of that on the cross. Hallelujah. Can I say this? I've said this before, but I hear, I'm here to tell you. For the elect, I don't know of anything but good news coming from heaven. I don't. Why do we make the Christian life as if it's all bad news? Hey, the bad news is you're a sinner and there's nothing you can do about it. The good news is God did something about it. Amen? And you don't have to be bound by what once bound you. Hallelujah! Amen! Let's run around the building. By the stripes you're healed. But here's where we're getting at today. We're going to spend some time on this. For you were like sheep going astray, but have now returned to the shepherd of your soul. Returned. What about that return? That word return. You have returned to the shepherd of your soul. You know why? Because you were chosen in Jesus Christ before the foundation of the world. You don't get entered into the last book of life. If you reject Christ, you get erased from it. He had a plan before we ever sinned. He had a plan before Adam and Eve ever did what they did. He had a plan already. Bible says, and we've celebrated it before, Ashley. It's one of your favorite verses. As the Father has loved you, so I have loved you. As loved me, so have I loved you. That the love relationship that exists between God the Father and God the Son is identical to the love relationship that He has for you, Al. And we examined that when we were meeting at the gym. And this one thing about that, this one thing, how long has that been in existence? Eternity past, eternity present, eternity future. It means that throughout all eternity, God has loved you. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Perfect love casts out all fear. You've been perfectly loved. Eternity past, eternity pre pre present, eternity future. Because that's the love that exists between the Father and the Son. God loves you as much as He loves His Son. So you now return. You've returned to what? What I had planned for you all along. 
It's a plan. Don't we love that when things work according to plan? Some more than others. Some people just plan everything. I'm not one of them. And I respect the ones that do. But don't you just love it though? No matter how you are and where you are on that spectrum when things work according to plan. God's salvation worked according to plan. Hallelujah to his name. But let's look at this. You now return to the shepherd and the overseer of your home. Shepherd is a great word. We're going to spend some time on this word shepherd. We're going to, we're going to spend a considerable amount of time on that word shepherd. God willing. But this morning, as it relates to authority, we're going to look at just for a minute this title of bishop of your soul. How many of you, uh, in my translation, it says overseer. Does anybody have a translation that says bishop? Bishop? Or bishop? Is that, that's King James, isn't it, Brian? Okay. What does it say in the New American Standard? Does anybody have a New American Standard? Here? Does anybody have an NIV? Pastor Dave, what does NIV say? It says overseer. Okay. You could translate that word bishop. But as it relates to difficult circumstances, as it relates to authority in our life that we find it hard to submit to, let's look at this for just a second. This word. This is the only time the only time in the New Testament, it's the only time in the Bible, that Jesus himself is referred to as the bishop or overseer of our souls. It's the only time. The word from which that comes, the prefix of the word intensifies the meaning of the word. It's epi. And the pre, the, that's the pre, prefix you find here. Accompanied with the root word from which it's translated intensifies the meaning of it. And the meaning of this is this. The root word from which this comes gives us the English word scope, S-C-O-P-E. Now, that's not mouthwash, but it's the word from which we get the word scope. And what it means is, is it helps us to see things clearly. For instance, telescope, periscope, coming up from a uh, submarine, uh, Microscope. You put something under the microscope and you get to see details about uh, what you're looking at that are, that are absent from uh, being seen from the naked eye. So it means it helps us to see things more clearly. And when you combine the root word with the prefix there, which means intensify, it intensifies it, you could say this. It means an instrument for intensive observation. That's what it means. It means a microscope that is big and powerful and can see anything. That's what that word means. Now, in ancient Greek, that word referred to a high-ranking military official who looked at his troops with scrutiny to make sure they're battle ready. You think about it. Troops are in line. Some of you here have a military background. I don't have one, but I respect the ones that do. And you have the officer going along and looking at the troops and soldier, let me look at that rifle. And you look at it, make sure it's clean, it's ready. And the intense scrutiny 
even though it might rub you the wrong way, has a very, 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 very good purpose. That is this. So that when the enemy's facing you, and he's pointing at you, and you're pointing back, your gun doesn't jam. Now you might not appreciate the officer or the attitude with which he demands that that gun be in good working order until you get in front of the enemy. And then all of a sudden you appreciate the scrutiny that happened when things were safe. You're looking at you to make sure that you're battle ready. That you're made battle, you're battle ready. Let me ask you this. What is characteristic of an army that can never, ever, ever, ever expect any measure of success against the enemy if this does not true? Think about it in light of First Peter. What must happen, though? What must be true of an army in order for them to work as a unit and be effective to carry out their battle plan against the enemy? What's, what must exist among all the ranks? This must be present. If it's not present, then people get killed. What must it be? Submission to authority. Can I say this, saints? If you want to just consign your Christian life to kind of sit on the sidelines and watch everybody else participate, and it'd be like a ball game, and you're a believer on parade rather than a believer in the battle, you don't have to worry much about this. But if when once you want to say, you know what, Lord? Post the surrender he's calling for and the posture he's calling for, the posture of surrender. Post that surrender. The only way I'm going to be fit and be battle ready is if I'm submissive to the commander. Because when once I get outside his authority, guess what I am? I am a pushover for the enemy. Now we can draw back to this. We can draw back and we can look at some things in Scripture. But one of the most significant ones, in my opinion, it's when you think, and we've talked about this before, but I want us to look at it. But when you look in Luke, let's go back to Luke. Let's go over and look for just a second, if you will. Chapter 7. <clears throat> Chapter 7. Don't you just don't you don't you uh, out, of, out of curiosity like if you've got maybe some access to Blue Letter Bible or something like that or just a, a regular concordance don't you just like to sometimes take something in Scripture and look and see if it's mentioned elsewhere and if it's not mentioned elsewhere then you just kind of zone in on the fact that well if that's the only place it's mentioned I better learn everything I can about what's around that if that's the only spot like this one right here Bishop of your soul only time in the Bible where Jesus is called the Bishop of our soul. All right. So, this account is one of those accounts in this. This is the only one of the times I can remember in Scripture. Now, there are others a little bit, but not quite like this one, where Jesus and his earthly ministry was blown away. That's the only time where he went, whoa. In today's vernacular, wow. Gee. I mean, astonished. Marvel is in this account. If that's the only place that we were to examine what's going on around here in the dynamics and see what it says to us. 
Let's begin in verse 1. Now when he concluded all these sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. Now Capernaum was command central for him at this time in his ministry. He wore it out of there. And a certain centurion servant who was dear to him was sick and ready to die. So when he heard about Jesus, he sent elders to the Jews, of the Jews to him, pleading with him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they begged him earnestly, saying that the one for whom he should do this was deserving. For he loves our nation and has built us a synagogue. So he said, okay, the Jewish leaders are saying, okay, Lord, this is a Gentile guy. Normally, we wouldn't advocate that you, find, you, know, you give him the time of day. But he's a donor. He's, uh, he's given. We've got, a, we've got his name on one of the bricks in the tabernacle or the synagogue because he's given us money. He loves our nation. He prays for us. Apparently, he must have some anticipation of a Messiah coming. Then Jesus went with them. He listened to them. And when he was already not far from the house, the centurion sent friends to him, saying to him, Lord, now look what he calls it. He didn't say teacher, miracle worker. He called him Lord. Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy that you should come under my roof. What was that? What Bible work did you assign to that? Humility. Humility. Repentance. I'm not worthy. First part of salvation. I'm not worthy. Don't even come here. I mean, I know who you are. You're holy. I'm not. I'm not worthy. Repentance. Humility. He says, okay. Therefore, I do not even think myself worthy to come to you. Look at this. But you say the word, and my servant will be healed. That's faith. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. Now look what he says right here. For I also am a man placed. Does it say in authority? It doesn't say in authority, does it? What does it say? I'm a man under authority. I'm a man under authority. This is an acknowledgment of the principle that we can lift from him being the bishop of our soul. That in order to be battle ready, you're not to be in authority. To be battle ready is to be under authority. I'm going to tell you right now, it, it's an incredible principle throughout the Bible. And it follows from Genesis all the way to the end of it and everywhere in between. In order to enjoy the spiritual blessing, power, and protection. Now, I don't mean that it doesn't keep you from getting killed. It may mean that you wind up getting killed. And it doesn't mean that it will keep you from difficult times because you're going to enter difficult times. But the power that comes through patiently enduring difficult times and possibly death comes not when you're in authority, brothers and sisters. It comes when you're under authority. And guess what? No power, no protection will be yours to enjoy if you're outside authority. There's not a battle plan that's ever been come up with by the greatest battle genius of the world I don't care what they come up with at Annapolis or West Point or anywhere in between. None of it will be successful if you've not got the troops under authority. Why do we believe it is any different in the body of Christ? Is that not but a picture of the spiritual realm and the, the battle that's going on for the souls of men and God's call for us to be not in authority, but God's call for us to be under authority. I've been many times been embroiled and in the middle of disputes 
inside churches. And I can tell you this right now, trying to help out and been involved in some of them. But I can tell you this. First of all, they're worth going through. It's worth waging the battle because we're talking about the church and that's God's bride and He loves them. I'll tell you another thing. I've never seen it when it wasn't but this. Just a sorry, nasty power struggle. And it boiled down to me. The Bible says, By the transgression of a land, many are its princes. And when once there's sin inside a church, people rise to the top to lead when there's a vacuum and normally it's the wrong person. It's the wrong people for the wrong motives and it's not God. I've seen it happen time and again. Let me tell you this. Under authority is where power comes from, not in authority. He said this. He said, because I'm under authority, I'm a man placed under authority, having soldiers under me, and I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. Why? Because I'm in authority or because I'm under authority? The soldier moves because you're under authority when you're led by a commander. What is he do? What is he doing? What is he doing? What is he doing? But acknowledging the truth and the core confession of the Christian faith, and that is this: that Jesus Christ willingly placed himself as a human being under the authority of God the Father and enjoyed all the blessing, all the power, and all the eternal fruit from that relationship. That's what he was confessing, Jesus. I'm under authority just like I know you to be. And that authority is so big. That authority is so powerful. And that authority is acknowledged from heaven. All you've got to do in order for my servant whose life hangs in the balance for him to be healed, that all the molecules of earth all the chemicals in his brain and every infection that is attacking his body will come under your line. All you've got to do is say the word and he'll be healed. And what does Jesus say? When Jesus heard these things, he, what? Marveled. Boy, that word right there, the word that's lifted from, he went, wow! Wow! This guy gets it! This guy gets it! Traction. This is it. You're right. You're right. And while he's saying the word marvel, what's happening? What's happening exactly at the same time that he's celebrating the recognition of the fact that God became a man? What happened? Every one of the affirmities that were attacking the body of that servant came under the line of Jesus Christ and went, and he was healed immediately. Why? Because when you're under authority, you can see authority. When you're under authority, you can see the kingdom. When you can see the kingdom, you have to operate under the kingdom. The outside authority, you can't see it. If it went up to you and went, boom! You want proof of that? Jesus looked at the Pharisees and said, You know what? You search the Scriptures because in them you think you have life. But these are they which testify of me. But you won't come to me that you might have life. Hootie hoo! I'm right here in front of you. Let me tell you something. The kingdom of God is not a place. The kingdom of God is a personality. And His name is Jesus Christ. It's not a geography. It's not a, it's not a boundary. It's not a point on the map. It's somebody. 
Jesus said, some of you are not going to die before you see the kingdom of God. And what does He do? Carries them three of them up to the Mount of Transfiguration. And what do they get to see? Heaven? What do they get to see? He took off His human garment and they got to see the kingdom of God. He said, the reign of God is me! Not some creed. Not some geographical region. Not the sweet by and by. The kingdom of God's me. You're rightly related to me. and You come under my authority. You get the, you get the protection of heaven. Not to keep you from getting killed. You can be in the middle of God's will and get killed. Not to keep you from heartache and pain. Not to keep your Learjet away from you. And what rightly belongs to you when you pull up and see a Mercedes and go, I claim that by faith. That's a bunch of shenanigans. No, not that. Kingdom authority to walk right to the cross and embrace it and bid me come and die that on the other side I get to live. Amen? That's what it is. It's a call to death so that there might be real life. Most of the life we see among professing Christians is death on parade. It's like dressing up a pig and putting lipstick on it. And no matter what you do to a pig to dress it up and put lipstick on it and all the other stuff that you want to put on a pig, it's still a pig. You're not a pig. You're a saint. You have a position. You and I do as His children. So when He saw these things, what did Jesus do? He marveled and turned around and said to the crowd that followed, I say to you, I have not found such great faith not even in Israel. Those who were sent, returning to the house, found the servant what? Well, because Jesus was a man under authority. And because He's under authority, you and I can be under authority. And because we're under authority, we can have the power and the blessing that go with it. This is a big deal, y'all. Here's the problem. And there is a problem here. Here's the problem. This is sad, but it's the problem. And it's a, it's, a, it's a characteristic of the flesh. It's not a characteristic of the spirit. The sad part about this is, in practice, we often resent this position that Jesus holds in our life as the bishop of our soul. Because when you tease out that word, you really find out what it means. What this means is this. Here's the sad part. We don't want or appreciate the scrutiny. We don't want or appreciate the scrutiny. You look at David. Was David a perfect man? <laughs> Not by a long shot. But did David long for this kind of scrutiny? You look at the psalm. Just read it. Just read it sometimes in light of that word, the bishop of our soul, and see what he called for from the Lord. Lord, search my heart and see if is there any, is there any anxious thought or offensive way in me and lead me into the way everlasting. We, we, you know what? And I tell you what, because of the way we treat people in church circles, the re, sometimes in church we don't like the scrutiny, and I don't blame us for that because a lot of times when the scrutiny does come and the weaknesses are exposed, rather than trying to help people through the weaknesses, we'd rather criticize them for it. We don't want to love them through it. We want to get impatient. We want to use it as a way to exalt ourselves above them because maybe the weakness is not something that I identify with, that I've got plenty enough of. 
I've got plenty enough. See, when you when you're in when you're in Christian circles and the stuff starts coming out and stuff starts revealing itself, rather than looking at scorn toward toward the stuff, why don't we begin with prayer? Why don't we get, begin with intercession and let the prayer not be for the one you see the weakness in, but let the first part of the prayer be, Lord, would you help me to deal with the weaknesses that exist within me? And then if I'll start praying for somebody else, you know what happened? You cannot pray for somebody without your heart being tenderized toward them. And let me tell you this. This is why in the beauty and infinite wisdom of God's Word, bishop is preceded by shepherd. Do you see it? See, I went to bishop first to give us a feel for that word bishop. It means scrutiny. It means looking at it, Scott, under a microscope. What's really there? Listen, here's the deal. Catherine came up to me and she was reading something in the Bible. And it was part of the law. It was in Leviticus. And she said, Daddy, do people really do that? Because there's a law against it. I said, sweetheart, let's take this opportunity. It was a great question. I appreciated her question. I said, let's take this opportunity to say this. The reason that's in there is because we have not yet plumbed the depths of how wicked man is apart from Jesus Christ. The reason that the Lord spoke to that is this. In Jeremiah chapter 17, the Lord says this, The heart of man is desperately wicked and deceitful above all things. Who can know it? What's the next verse? What's the next verse? Anybody know? It leaves with the question, who can know it? Implication, can you know the condition of your own heart? Can you know the condition of your own heart? Can I know the condition of my own heart? Absolutely not. I cannot know the condition of my own heart. But here's the, here's the good news, and it could come to you as bad news, according to where you're at spiritually. But what's the next part? What's the next part, Nancy? I, the Lord, tests the heart. I know what's in there. You want to know what's in your heart? Ask me. But wait a minute. Wait a minute before you ask. You ever had somebody come up to you and you say, you know what? Can I get your advice on something? They say, well, you know what? Before you ask, let me tell you this. I'm going to tell you the truth. So before you ask, just know God's going to send down truth. That's all He's going to do. But you know what? Isn't that good? Because see, the bishop, the one who is scrutinizing us to make sure we're battle ready, before he ever called himself the microscope of my life identifies himself as my shepherd. My shepherd. Oh, away with the notion, brothers and sisters, that your shepherd will lead you to a life of ease, comfort, and pleasure until you die and you're on the cloud playing the harp with all the other people who have gone to the sweet by and by. But until then, it's going to be no problem. We're going to fly 70,000 feet, 40,000 feet above the clouds. There's going to be no turbulence. Peter, I bet that you like tea, water. What would you like? Coffee? Would you like some sweetener? You know, and everybody's coming by on the aisle. And they're taking care of us. And we're looking out at the billowing clouds. And there's no problem. We'll just safely arrive at our destination. We'll pull in and we'll get off the plane. And we'll just get back right where we intended to go all along. But yet, the only problem that's the Bible. Because the Christian life is fraught with difficulty, turbulence, and bad weather. But guess who's in charge of contrary wind? 
That's what the disciples learned when Jesus said, Peace, be still. And it went, Lake Placid. And they went. The Bible says they were afraid before the storm happened. After he did that, the Bible says they were terrified. And they went, Whoa! Whoa! Whew. You're in charge of the storm? And I wrote beside my Bible and I was studying that one day. God is in charge of contrary wind. Isn't it, isn't it sad? Isn't it sad? that we would take. And we're going to get into this. I'm going to have to close for right now. I wanted to go here today. I felt I felt compelled to go here today. God willing, we'll go here next week. But it is sad, and it is a misuse of Psalm 23 to read it at funerals. Because let me tell you something. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. Let me tell you this. The death that that psalm speaks of is not when you drop dead. It's the cross He designed for you today. My shepherd led me there. See? The one who has the scrutiny. I love the order of things in the Bible is always there for a reason. And before he ever talked about the scrutiny, he said, I'm shepherd. I'm shepherd. Dear ones, dear ones, can I say this to you? Let the shepherd of your soul be your bishop. Let him run the microscope in there. Let me tell you this. You got something wrong with you? You got something wrong with you? And they know something's wrong with you, but they don't quite know what it is. And they send stuff in your body to go find out. You appreciate thoroughness. Huh? You say, go in there and find out everything you need to know so we can deal with this. We can find out. Let me tell you this. Whatever can happen to your physical body carries with it minuscule consequences that can what, ha can, can, can what happen in an unexamined spiritual life. Don't live an unexamined spiritual life. If there's problems in the family, find out where it's coming from. Don't try to hide it or act arrogant about it. Or like, we've arrived and we've got that done. If there's problems in the church, find out where it's coming from and let's deal with it. If there's problems in any realm of your life, in your marriage, find out where it is and find out where the root is. And don't go looking at somebody else who may be involved without first asking the Holy Spirit to look at you. He leads me to beside still waters. You know the still waters were for Jesus Christ? The still waters was when he was on that cross. That's the context of that song when it was written. I'm, I've got a table in the presence of my enemies that God has prepared for me. And even though they're around me, I'm feasting on what is yet to come. I'm feasting on what I'm about to purchase. Because see, I'm in the birth canal. You're in the birth canal. The church was in his birth canal. That's where we were. And through the struggling and the turmoil and all of that, and he said, it is finished. It's like the baby got delivered. Hallelujah! And who's the baby? The church! And then there's joy after all of that happened because he birthed his child. It's his church. Hallelujah! Amen? 
don't live an unexamined Christian life. Let him perform the scrutiny that needs to be performed so that the surgery can come and be scheduled. But remember, any scrutiny that you're given is by your shepherd. And he wants to put you under his authority. Not so he can keep you from dying for your faith or keep things from getting difficult. It's so that he can give you the grace to be victorious in the middle of the difficulty. That's Jesus. Are you proud of him? I'm proud of him. I commend him, don't you? Let's commend him to somebody today. And let's commend him to somebody every day this week. And let's commend him to our family. And let's commend him when we submit to the authorities in our lives.